I thought if the Germans catch me, a couple of bullets in my bloody rifle, my magazine, I saved them deliberately in case, in case I got caught, I was going to shoot me bloody up. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody there. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slim. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. I feel very privileged to share with you the story of Victor Power. Victor is a 98-year-old World War II veteran of the British Army. He moved to Australia in the 1950s and gained his citizenship. Victor and I had been in contact about doing an interview for this podcast. He lives in Brisbane and was keen to fly to Sydney, have a bit of a holiday, and meet up with us to record an episode. A week before his trip, he was struck down with pneumonia and hospitalised. After weeks in hospital, I received a call saying it wasn't likely Victor was going home. As soon as I could, I jumped on a plane. In his ward, we found ourselves a room off to the side and spoke about his life and wartime service. This is our conversation. Victor, thank you for speaking with me today. Victor, when were you born? I was born in uh, Trafford Park, Manchester, the 30th of June. 1919. Can you tell me a bit about your childhood? Oh, my childhood? Oh, well, <laughs> I was a wild one. <laughs> I was a wild one. <laughs> How so? Well, I've had many good items for things that I, I didn't do, but um, I overcame all that. Were you being wrongfully accused to get the hidings? Of- oh, uh, m- many cases, many cases. Well, I had I had uh, brothers and sisters. Oh, Vic did this and Vic did that. And I used to get a pretty good hiding, and they missed out. <laughs> How many brothers and sisters did you have? There were three brothers and two sisters. I'm, I'm one of five, three and two. Are any of them still with us today, your brothers and sisters? I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know? I wouldn't know. I've not been in touch. They've not been in touch with me. And I've not been in touch with them for some years because they've never bothered about me. In effect, I've become to believe I had no family in that sense. You know what I mean? I don't know whether they're alive or dead. I wouldn't have a clue. What was your father's occupation? He was a storeman, a wonderful man. As a kid, he always used to take me a walk uh, here or there. He got injured in the First World War. A bullet hit him on this side and he had no, oh no, that side. His left cheek? Yeah, his left cheek. And he lost his eye on the right. So it went in his left cheek and came out his right eye? Eye, yeah. Well, he must have done. He had had x-ray photographs, uh, but I never got them. 
for some reason I never got all his gear. Which part of the Western Front did he serve on? Well, he served in France too in the First World War. Well, I don't know much about because he didn't like to talk about it. I didn't like to talk about my service. Was your father quite scarred or disfigured from the injury? Well, not not particularly. He was able. Uh, he had his arms, his legs, much the same as I am. Just but, one eye missing. Just the one eye. One eye missing, yeah. He was on a, a British pension at that time. Well, I do think that it did affect him a lot because he used to have me hold his hand on the right-hand side always whenever he took me for a walk. And he'd have a go at me as a, as a kid. He'd, you see that clock up there? I can see the time on that clock. <laughs> That's what he was on about. And I said, well, I said, all right, I can see the time. What time are you on? And I'd tell you, and so I'd repeat the time to him. He says, that's right, son, that's right. <laughs> he had a good sense of humour then. Oh, yeah, of course he did. Well, we were, well, I was born with a sense of humour, yeah. What was your mother like? Well, my mother was a strict woman as regards behaviour. My mother was working in a factory and she was making shells for the First World War. And the press came down and chopped the fingers off of her right hand. And I became her slave in that sense. You had to help her um, well, around the house. Well, it was Vic do this and Vic do that and Vic do that. And I used to do a lot of uh, help in the cooking and, and, and I used to do a little bit of help with my father, of course, but more so with my mother. What's the birth order between you and your siblings? Where do you fit in the family? Oldest. Did all the responsibility mm -hmm. fell to you? More or less, yes. To a, to a hell of a degree, it was, yeah. Did the Great Depression impact on your family? Oh, yes, it did, because uh, a lot of people were out of work and he had to struggle to get work and he managed, but uh, it wasn't quite the same, bread and margarine and dry bread and butter, dry bread and, and jam. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember all of that. You're starting to bring me home. It's nice I can help transport you back across the seas. You sure are, yeah. What did you do for fun as a teenager? Well, dancing, dancing and going to the pictures. And some of the pictures were good. The old pictures, black and white, before, before television came out. I started learning how to smoke and I learned how to drink. <laughs> but... but but in, in general, I lived like the boys that I was with. <laughs> we, we'd go out dancing and uh, picking up a girl here and there, and it was happy days they were. I used to ride a bike. Wherever I went, I went on a push bike, yeah. The only motor vehicle I had was a, a Velocet a motorcycle, 250. And I, I, I enjoyed using it. I really did. That was my first lesson of driving. But my father had a, a motorbike and sidecar combination. He got a car, got rid of the bike and got a car when I was learning to drive the car. Up to going into the army, I've got the license. I was driving in the army and they got a license for me to drive any form of vehicle. I was pretty adept. When you were a bit older, a young teenager, do you remember reading in the papers about the rise of Nazis? 
My father was a handyman. He used to make radios, and I used to listen. I used to get up, light the fire, and put the radio on, what he'd made, and I used to listen to... Um, it, it was Germany, but at that time, they were doing all the exercises. It used to make me think, oh, and the music was beautiful. That They played the music, uh, a saxophone or, or whatever. The music was pretty good. I was listening to a broadcast from Germany, but I didn't know. I just thought it was some... And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, entertainment, but uh, I, I left it at that. But as I grew up, got into a little interest in world affairs, bingo, he started to... Re I used to think, hello, hello, we're going to get another war. <laughs> when war broke out, how did you react and feel at the time? Well, I, I didn't want to go, but uh, I'm glad I had to do what I did. Were your parents worried when you were... Oh, I don't know. I don't know their attitude. I wouldn't have a clue. I know for sure that when I was called up, my mother and father, you're not going to no war. You're staying right here. But they couldn't do anything about it. I just went. But they weren't happy about it because my father was already in the First World War and he wasn't happy. Particularly, I don't know what he was thinking, but he must have been thinking about himself having been in the First World War, and he didn't want me to get into it. He wanted to spare his son the pain. Well, that's how I looked at it, you know. Victor, you get the letter in the post saying you've been called up for conscription. When do you have to go to training? When the letter came, when I got home from where I was working, my mother and father were waiting for me and wanted to know what it was all about. They were going to put me in the forces. I had a, a letter telling me to go for a medical. Because of it, they didn't want me to go. And they tore it up, put it at the back of the fire and... That was illegal, wasn't it? Of course. They got in trouble over it. They really wanted to protect you. I would think so. We got another letter for me to go for a test of strength and all the rest of it. I did just that, and I went for the medical board, they passed me A1. Next thing was, I was called up. I did uh, three, four weeks of training. Can you um, describe the training, the three or four weeks of training for Yeah, I went three or four weeks of training. Where at? Bury. Yeah, Bury, Lancashire. Lancashire Fusiliers Depot is in Oldham. I had to go out to Oldham from where I lived. They paid for me to go out there and back. I passed all the necessary details that they wanted to know about me. And so I was in the army. They wanted to know what I wanted to be. And so, well, I couldn't have, I had no choice because at that time, they wanted everybody they could get to go over there. Christmas 1939, I was taken by rail and I got on board a ship and they took me to France. Actually, we were on the way to Narvik. We had winter gear, all the winter gear we could have, and they changed all our winter gear to another lighter gear. And the boat was turned round and ended up at France. We were taken out, we skirted Paris, 
and went up north, France, north of France. Had you made friends by this point, or were you just so unhappy to be there? In fact, I was enjoying it, to be honest, <laughs> because I was going on all a holiday. <laughs> well, I thought I was. <laughs> the second battalion, Lancashire, they were World War One mob. Some of them were were in the World War One. I was added added to the second battalion D Company. I was stationed at a place called Runk, R O N Q, Northern France. The World War One veterans in the battalion did they share with you? Any oh thoughts? yeah, well, I got on well. I got on number one. There was one of them he used to amuse me. Every time we went for a shower, he wore his tinat and he did a Spanish onion. Took the cover off of an onion and. He did like an apple. And he says, I've never had a cold in my life. <laughs> what about your, your turn out? Don't you take the turn out when you go for a shower? <laughs> no, he said, never do that. No way. Get caught, stop me from getting cold. <laughs> uh, funny <oddity. laughs> They need a sense of humor in that situation. Oh, they, they were good boys, yeah. I got on with them all. 20 years ago, the war to end all wars. Now they're back at war with Germany again. Did they share their thoughts on that? No, no. We had to do what we had to do at that time. I was in Ronk in France. I was moved from there into Belgium, right into the battlefield. And I ended up at Brussels with the same boys. We made our way to Brussels by foot. And while we were going in, the migrants, people wanted to get out of uh, the houses, were coming out. Refugees fleeing Refugees, the yeah, they were coming out. And they were impeding us and causing a problem for us. You're a private and an infantryman at this stage, a rifleman. A rifleman, yeah. I had one rifle, but I was trained the, uh, on the brain gun. I was trained on the brain gun. And that was one of the things I couldn't understand because when I got there, I took a brain gun with me, but it was taken off me, and I had to show the other guys, that World War members, how to use it. Tell me about your posting in Brussels. We ended up in a cellar in the main street, just off the river. The river ran through uh, Brussels. The bridge was supposed to be blown up blow up the bridge to impede the advance of the Nazis? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And they had, well, they broke through from Holland, I know Czechoslovakia, into Belgium on the far side. And where they broke in, the boys up there already were fighting the Germans. But they were too strong. They had everything. And all we had was, well, as I said before, a rifle. What could I do with a bandolier? I had a bandolier of ammo, pouches here, and I had two magazines for the brain gun. And as I said, it was taken away from me. That's hardly going to stop a group of panzers, tanks. We couldn't. We couldn't. Let's come back to you in Brussels. So you're based in the cellar. You need to blow up a bridge. The Germans aren't right there yet. You're not on the front line, but they are getting close. Do you blow up the bridge successfully? That was where, actually, that was where the front line started. 
at the bridge. Uh, uh, yes, because the bridge was supposed to be blown and it wasn't. But you're based a bit further back from the bridge. Well, it would have been very, very close because... We're talking a block, a street, or...? Just about a block, yeah, just about a block. We'll come to the retreat to Dunkirk, but how long were you in Brussels before you had to flee? It wouldn't have been more than four days, four or five days. Uh. Were those quiet days for you, or were they um, busy? Well, we had work to do, preparations, we had to barricade the road as well. Uh, we did that as much as we could be, with horses, with carts, wrecked motor cars and things like that. We had to, but they just come through and they come straight through the tank. They, they were fully equipped because they could make a, make a bridge across any river without any trouble. That's how easy it was for them. What's the atmosphere, the morale like for you and your fellow troops? I mean, you sound like the underdog in this situation and Germany is bearing down on you hard. How did everyone feel? I think they only wanted to save themselves, much the same as I did. What could you do with a rifle and a few rounds of ammunition against a, a tank or a, a motor patrol or, or half a dozen lady soldiers? I'm bloody lucky. You certainly are. On the 28th of May, 1940. That was the day we were ordered, yes. You were ordered to retreat? We were ordered to retreat, yeah. The German army is on the way with overwhelming force. Oh, yes, they, they were massing on the other side of the river. Do you recall receiving the order to retreat? Oh, yes, I remember it very clearly. Maybe eight of us were in the cellar when news came up as regards retreating to the coast. That's why all we got. We had to make our own way to the beach. It takes you nine days to get from Brussels to the beach. Can you walk me through the events that occurred? We were shelled and bombed and uh, Stuka bombed us. Bloody things, they were whining away like anybody's business and dropping the bombs like they did was something I'd never, never dreamt about. No. We were ordered to retreat. We were ordered into a, this copse, a few trees, to hide and relax because we've been bloody traveling fair distance. I don't know mileage, I wouldn't have a clue. And as soon as we got in that bloody copse, straight away we were ordered on the way again because they started to shell it. The, the Germans started to shell, yeah. Could you see them or just the shells? No, we didn't see them, just the shells dropping here and dropping there, yeah, in the cops, and we had to get out of it quick. <laughs> yeah. I imagine there was some strong language well, used by you. Oh, uh, you, you can say that again. <laughs> so you flee from the trees. Where do you go to next? Well, we, we carried on some bloody uh, French lane towards the beach. From the cops, we, we sort of split up a lot of us. It was every man for himself sort of thing. There was a, a row of garages behind these houses. I broke the lock on the garage and the car inside it. I got the, the other boys to help me push it out. I opened the bloody door, drive door, driving door. The key was in the bloody lock. How lucky. Yeah. And I thought, Ooh, hey, go. Hang on, boys. <laughs> and I turned the key and the bloody thing started. Fantastic. Oh, beautiful. What yeah. kind of car was it? A P Peugeot. Peugeot. And there are six yeah. of you climbing into this? 
There are six of you? There were seven of us all together. But you'd split up by this point. No, no, oh, we all piled on the, <laughs> on the bonnet. Oh, could, could hardly even let you see. Yeah, I was the only one that was able to drive because I was learning driving at home. Do you have any food, any rations? No, food? What was that? We, oh, boy. <laughs> I never saw a, a full meal, any meal. I was lucky. We had a block of chocolate. I often wondered what, what it was like. I found out. I bloody opened the bloody packet. Well, it was a, a square, square piece of that. And a, I can't remember whether it was cloth or what. But anyway, I, I opened it up and I took a couple of... You couldn't bite into it. No way you couldn't bite into it. It was hard, bloody, bloody hard to get out. But I had a bit of that, and that's, how, that's what kept me alive, yeah. Were you under fire when you first drive away, or were you a bit ahead of the... Oh, we're under fire all the time, yeah. We're under fire all the time. Stukas. Did any of you get hit? Yes, one of them did. He got hit in the tin hat, and it knocked him over. But, uh, but the, did the tin hat protect and him? And the uh, shrapnel that hit him stuck in the tin hat. So for most of your nine-day journey, there are seven of you on foot running from copes of trees to copes of trees, house to house, village to village, under constant fire. Do you get time to sleep? or No, you are just, no sleep. Or you are just awake for no sleep. seven days, non-stop. Yeah. How do you do that? That's incredible. Well, I often thought about that one. I was walking in my sleep. <laughs> you guys must have been so yeah, tired. I was, yeah. No, you, you hit a point there because I was walking in my bloody sleep. If you don't keep moving, you die. Sleep was a, a no-no. Sleep and food yeah. are dreams. Of, well, of you, you had to be alert all the time. You were always looking at the back of you. You never knew what was at the back of you, you know? Who was in charge, Sergeant Bottomley? Or? Sergeant Bottomley was a good, a good man. There was another... Corporal, he was pretty good too. I can't think of his name. When you're busy being under fire like that, did you have any um, flashbacks to your father and think about his injuries? No. You're busy in the present. My thoughts were getting away. I was not going to be taken a prisoner. I was determined on that. I believe all the world. But I didn't know whether it was going to end up at the bleach. I was, you know, if it meant that I had to swim across the bloody channel to get to England, I would have tried it. Did you have any thoughts of shooting myself? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Bloody hell, I did. I thought if the Germans catch me, a couple of bullets in my bloody rifle, my magazine, I saved them deliberately in case, in case I got caught, I was going to shoot me bloody hell. Did you get close to any German soldiers at any point? I remember one little part. We came across a troop of German soldiers and they'd already killed British servicemen. They were undressing the soldiers, English soldiers, taking the dogs off, the dog tags, putting them on, their uniform, British uniform. Oh yes, and they got away at Dunkirk with the bob. And they were fifth song. Uh, they were spies, and they were using our uniform and our dog tags for the person that got killed. Most of them got caught because 
the parents of the soldier have learned all this sort of thing because that's what they were doing to get into England to try and bloody get us down. Yeah. When you come across a group of these Germans um, dressing in British <laughs> Well, we uniforms. couldn't do anything about it. We, we, we didn't have any fading of armour. So you didn't want to take them on because it was too we dangerous? Couldn't, we couldn't take them on. If we'd have started something, we'd have all bloody killed ourselves. <laughs> Did you ever exchange fire with the enemy? Yes, often. About the distance of that wall to this here. So about... Yeah. We're talking less than yeah. 10 metres. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the first kill you made? Do I ever? I hated the thought of it. But what could I do? I was, it was a job. It, it was easy because uh, while they were sitting talking and, uh, and all the rest of it, as soon as the alarm went, up they got and, and we have to fire at them. And that's what we did. Along the beach, when the Germans were bombing the beach, there was a plane. I was in one of the sand hills at front on the at Dunkirk. One of these Stukas came over and he dropped his bombs and he flew away. Well, there was three of them and they flew away and all of a sudden they, came, they doubled back, strapping, strapping the bloody beach. And I was in a position where I was practically level with that bloody Stuka that flying across. Oh, I bet I can hit him. <laughs> and so I, I set my rifle up and bang. I put three, three bullets and I know it hit him, but I don't know where. You see, you know you hit the plane. Oh, I hit the plane, yes. Wasn't far away from me. Still, you're a good shot to hit the, the oh, fast yeah, I was plane. Oh yeah, I was a dicky dead eye. Yeah, <laughs> I was. But I hit this plane. I would imagine that there'd be more troops because he was so low, would have had to go up hitting him too. But he, he turned around and went over the sea, played straight into the water. So I don't know whether I got it or whether someone else did. Yeah. When, when I got to the beach, there was a red cup. He came up and he wanted to know where we were from and uh, what regiment we were, which I explained. But the boys that were on the car all disappeared. They I just mean, saw the beach and ran for it. They, they were gone. But I got caught with the car and they made me put my bayonet into the tank to uh, release the petrol so that when they put it into the fire, it would burn up. And the distributor cap, I took off. I smashed that anyway. And I was, I was told to throw it away so it couldn't be used and smashed the inside of the distributor. And I did all that. It would have been easier to put your puncture the tires. <laughs> they left that to the fire. So you reach Dunkirk, you're looking over the beach, you hit the plane, you get down to the beach, your buddy's scarper, you smash up the car. Were there lots of ships on the horizon? Oh, the there world? were ships out. See, as a point of interest, Dunkirk itself is a little town. And a lot of the troops got off off the jetty there. But I was bloody five miles away, or five kilometres away, on the beach. Well, not only me, but others. Because when they came through, when the Germany came through the Ardennes, the Ardennes forest, supposed to be said that it would be impossible for them to come through. But boy, didn't they come through with armour. Oh, boy. 
how many did you see on the beach? Hundreds, thousands? There was a lot on the beach at first, probably the day before we got off it. I think that was supposed to be the last lot that we were going to take off. I don't know. It appeared that way. And I didn't think we were going to be taken off. But a um, couple of rowing boats, and they come out and took us on the board and we got off. And I was bloody tired, buggered all together. What was it like uh, waiting around on the beach, just waiting for your turn to be rescued? Oh, well, we didn't wait for turns. <laughs> you scrambled. <laughs> you scrambled for it, yeah. Did you wade out to sea? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, we had to. Couldn't do anything else. That's where I was going to do my buddy's business, shoot myself. <laughs> I was from the channel, yeah. But then you got picked up by one of the little One of the boats, yes, yeah. There was still a couple of boats, yeah. We've had the recent Dunkirk film by Christopher Nolan come out. Did the sights, sounds and atmosphere of the beach in that movie match up to your memory? Not quite. There was something in it. I've seen the picture that's referred to. No, it wasn't quite the same as what we went through. So between destroying the car and waiting out to sea and getting picked up, how long did you stay on the beach for? Minutes? Hours? Oh, no, it wouldn't be minutes. I spent one day and one night on the beach, the last day and night. Tell me more about the beach. I want to hear some more memories from your time. Well, uh, that particular part of the beach, the tide went out pretty far and the ship was bloody miles away out, out at sea. You had a hell of a way to wade if you wanted to go out to the ship. And you'd have to swim from wherever it got deeper and so on. You were lucky if you was able to get in a boat, a motorboat, to take you out there. I could hardly bloody climb up the bloody side of the ship. Imagine yeah. you were too bloody tired. Oh, it's buggered. <laughs> Real buggered. <laughs> Tell me about your voyage home. I slept. I got on board ship and I just laid down on the bloody deck and went to sleep. I remember a padre, he come and woke me up. He, was, he thought I was dead, and he come and woke me up and wanted to know my name and all the rest of it. Maybe for the records, I don't know, I don't know, but I would imagine he did. What was your role in the army when you got home? I was uh, made a dispatch rider. Uh, I enjoyed that, I was able to get around to different places. I had to go from headquarters and ABCD. This was down south of England. Before I got the dispatch rider job, we were on defence because the Germans planned to invade and uh, we were all put on immediate duty because of it. Churchill didn't waste time. He had tanks built full of oil and they had pipes going out to sea. And uh, as soon as the Germans decided to invade, they set the sea on fire. I was there at the time when it was done. You watched the sea burn? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, and we had dead Germans stuck in the K-wire along the coast, yeah. And we had to get them out and bury them. Did you feel any sympathy for them, watching them burn? Well, I was I was sorry for him, yes, very much so. I was thinking of myself at the time too. What I had to put up with, I didn't like any of it, no. You'd seen how impressive the German war machine was up close when you were in Europe. 
Did you uh, feel Britain could defend itself against that? No. Impossible. It was impossible. When you got home, how long was it until you got to see your parents? Now, let me think on that one. My birthday was in June. I got married on the 17th of August. That was the first time I got home. So you're now 12. I had a, a week's special leave. You've just turned 21. You've just got married. I would be 21, yes. You've just got married and you've a week's leave. Yeah. How? I had a week there and I had to return. Did you have talks with your parents about your time in Dunkirk? Do they ask questions? They never asked. They never asked? Never asked. They never asked any questions whatsoever. They just let everything die. Much the same as I tried to. Yeah. I was glad to be home, put it that way. I'm sure they were glad to see you. Oh, yes, oh, of course. When does your period of conscription well, end? Nine, 1943. Well, I got discharged because of, I had an illness and I, I developed a, a TB. And they put me out and put me out to grass. <laughs> I was sorry because I was beginning to enjoy the life I was living at that time too. 1944, you're out of the army, but in June, almost four years to the date, British troops, along with American and Canadian, find themselves back on French beaches, but this time on the offensive. Yeah. How did that make you feel hearing about D-Day? Well, I was sorry I wasn't there, but um, I would have liked to have done a little bit more for, for England, if you like. I didn't get out not to go back. I got out to go back. That was my attitude. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything else other than what happened. And then war ends the following year. That's right. But I would have liked to have gone right through to the end, but it didn't work. I, I admit that I did become to like what I was doing. Although I didn't like killing, I will admit that one. But... Uh, if, it, if it, it's just another job, just another job. Let's come back to your wife. When did you meet? Oh, <laughs> that was a funny one, that one. What's her name? I was uh, Marjorie Elizabeth. Marjorie. When did you meet Marjorie? Well, I was out one evening to go to a dance with a mate of mine, Arthur Kelly. And I went out, I got myself cleaned up and ready to go out. We were in the main street and Marjorie was on a pushbike and she was at the side of the curb straightening her dress. I thought she'd had an accident or something. And I went over and I said, can I help you? And she said, no. And that's how we met. And so one of the men you fought with married a German in the 40s. Well, that again has puzzled me. Now, I must admit, it has puzzled me because I've not had one, any one of them have ever come back to me except one. And he went through the war and he was on peacekeeping and uh, he was looking for somewhere. He married a German Frau. I was not happy about that part of it. I had a house with a spare room and I let him have the spare room for a short time, till I came over to Australia. And then in the 1950s, you moved to Australia. What <laughs> line of work did you go into? Oh, I'm a builder by trade. When did you retire? Even when I retired, I, I still did a bit of work for people, yeah. I was never a lazy person. I got on with what, but if somebody wanted a job, I'd do it for them. 
And your wife, Marjorie, she dies... 1975. 1975. I'm so sorry. That's such a young age to go. Yeah, that's right. It's terrible. Well, I built a big home over in Redcliffe for the family. When I lost Marjorie, I couldn't stay in it. I had to get out of it. And I sold it. Cheapest bloody thing. I just took what I could get for it. And is your son still in Brisbane? Well, no. He's in Sydney somewhere. He's in a home in Sydney. He, he, he's worse than I am. Well, I believe. He can't do nothing for me, and I can't do anything for him. Simple as that. The children that he has, well, I get a ring from one of the daughters, but I can't do anything for her either. She's up in Darwin, so how can I get out to Darwin? But you're very well supported now by Janice. Oh, yes, yes. When did you start losing touch with your siblings? Well, I haven't got in. No, I haven't done that. They've got out. They've done it to me. I never hear from them. Why do you think that is? I don't know. You've got a good question there, mate. Oh, boy. When did you last hear from one of them? I've never heard from any of them. What, since you left England? When they were, when they were kids, I was doing everything I possibly could to make them happy. As soon as I come out to Australia, nothing. I've written back, Marjorie wrote back to her family. I, I heard from her brother, Clifford. Uh, that was the only time I've ever heard from any England. Are there any final thoughts or comments you would like to make about your wartime service or life after? I'm not sorry of what I've done, but I, I didn't like killing. Killing wasn't my, my nature, wasn't my nature at all. I don't know where all this is going to go, but wherever it's going to go, it's the gospel truth of what I went through. There could be others like me that won't speak up. They don't want to speak up. They just let things die. I don't believe in that. Well, Victor, I think you speak on behalf of many people, many who choose not to, many who are no longer with us and who are able to and you have done so with such gusto and honesty. I've had tears in my eyes while I've been talking to you. I know. No word. You're a good fellow, Matt. Number one. Well, thank you for sharing your incredible life story yeah. with me today, Victor. During Victor's time in hospital, the French consulate visited him and bestowed upon him the rank of Chevalier, Knight in the Legion of Honour. France's highest military award. I am pleased to tell you that after that interview, Victor was eventually discharged and sent home and was cooking for himself again in no time. In subsequent phone calls, he apologised for what he felt was an awful interview, because Victor is quite a humble bloke like that. I'm deeply honoured he spoke with me and am proud to share his story through this podcast. If you like the episode, you can let us know by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And please make sure you're subscribed in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher to hear more stories like Victor's. Join the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs>